morning, uh, as we close out 1 John, this letter that he wrote here, uh, it's easy to take all three letters together, and, and we do that because they're listed right here, but they are three different letters. And so as he closes out this letter, uh, you're seeing him come to this point, and the, and the title is Evidence. Uh, the evidence of Christ, the evidence of salvation, and that's what we're looking at uh, this morning. And then we finish the book of 1 John next week, and that's 13 through 21, and there's some certainties or promises or assurances that he gives as he closes it out. But uh, I was looking at this idea of evidence, and there was this uh, famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell. He lived from 1872 to 1970, and he was a famous atheist philosopher who wrote over a hundred books. Now, his most famous book, or the one that he's known for the most, is Why I Am Not a Christian. Why I Am Not a Christian. And in it, he stated <coughs> that organized religion, and that's speaking of Christianity or any organized faith, but specifically, obviously, you know, Why I Am Not a Christian, where he centers his hate at. But was, he, says, he says, all organized religion was a remnant of a barbaric past. It was just superstitious nonsense. Excuse me. When you see, obviously, someone's going to ask him, well, what would you do? What would you say? And someone did. What would you say if you stood before God? And this was his very arrogant reply. I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? So the famous philosopher, the atheist who wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian, when asked, what would you say to God if you were standing in front of him? What would, what would you say? And of course, he doesn't believe in a God, but if there was a God and you stood before him and he says, I need more proof. Well, the apostle John had written already, and he writes here that the evidence Bertrand Russell would request, and let's be honest, so many other people request, is overwhelming and irrefutable. And sadly, I mentioned this, uh, Russell nor anyone else will ever, will ever stand before God and make such an arrogant statement. Uh, people that say, when I get into heaven, I will tell God this. You will tell God nothing. You will not ask this arrogant question. You will not do any of the things that you imagine. But what John is saying here is the fact is this, God's truth lacks no evidence. And that's how he's closing out his book, and I want to give a little bit more context again. The, the early church, and this is about 80, 90 to 100, and they've had false teachers come in, and they've seen people leave the church. And so the faith of the remnant has been shaken. They're, they're, they're wondering, is something off? Is something wrong? Did, did we miss the point? Have we missed what's going on? And so as John is closing out his letter, he's giving the church clear evidence for Christ and what they've believed in. And the reality is this, the fact is God's truth lacks no evidence. It's there to be seen. The issue lies with sinful and un unbelieving hearts. Spurgeon notes about this, that Christianity puts forth very lofty claims to the true faith and the only true one. She avows her teachings to be divine and therefore infallible, while for her great teacher, the Son of God, she demands divine worship and the unreserved confidence and obedience of men. 
Her commands are issued to every creature, and though at present her authority is rejected by millions of mankind, and this is Spurgeon writing, so I'm going to say billions now, she confidently looks forward to a time when the truth of God shall obtain universal dominion, and Jesus the Lord shall take unto himself his great power and reign. Now to justify such high claims, the gospel ought to produce strong evidence, and it does. It does not lack for external evidence these are abundant. And so when someone says there's no grounding or basis for your faith, John is saying otherwise. So as the early church is facing an exodus of people and they're wondering what in the world is going on, John is saying, don't question your faith. And he's going all the way back. And, and we find here as John is making a clear case for Christ, like he's standing in a courtroom. And the words he used have that connotation. He's standing in court. He's saying, I'm bringing as a witness. I'm bringing as a witness. I'm bringing as a witness these different things, giving clear evidence because if you go all the way back to his gospel account, he writes this in John, I think, twenty thirty one. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John wrote his gospel so people would believe in Jesus Christ. He writes this letter, and we'll get to it in 13, is so that they can have assurance of what they believe, knowing that they are in Christ. That's First uh, John five thirteen. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, his point in this letter was to bring the church assurance, and the point of his gospel was to present the truth so people would believe in Jesus Christ. And here is his treatise, so to speak. Here is his courtroom defense of Christ and the evidence that is there. And so this letter to the early church and to us starts with three core pieces of evidence that are unmistakably seen on earth, and they're explained in verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read those again. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. And I want you to recognize John is always bringing the conversation back to Christ. So people start wandering off into experiences and emotions and all over the place. And John is always the guy that regroups. Now, what we were talking about, and he says, we're talking about Christ. And so this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. Now he reverses the order a little bit. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. And so we'll begin with his reference to water, which is speaking of Christ's baptism. This is his baptism, the start of his ministry. Now, Interestingly, the false teachers of that time stated that the Father affirmed Jesus at his baptism, but they denied that he did so at his death. Now, their teaching is more erroneous than that because they say that the Messiah came on the man Jesus at baptism and left him before his death. But I just want you to see that the first evidence John brings to court, the first witness he brings forward to the church, is something that the false teachers have, have somewhat agreed with as well. There's a partial agreement, but you're going to quickly see how he distanced himself from their lie. But let's dive into this idea of his baptism. He's going back all the way to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, and he was preaching repentance. And people, and I put in parentheses, Jews were coming and being baptized. Now, 
For Jews to come and be baptized in the Jordan River was a big move for them. That was a big step. See, typically in that connotation, in that type of preaching, it was Gentiles coming to Jewish faith who typically engaged in baptism, not Jews in this connotation. They didn't come and say, let me be baptized into the faith. I'm going to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I have these problems. The Jews typically thought of themselves as the chosen people, which they were, but that's the status they walked in under. And so when John is preaching repentance and Jews come out and participate in John's baptism, they were acknowledging the same need as a Gentile sinner. So this was a big move of humility for them. But notice this, John is saying repent of sin. And so you have a very clear message. John is dealing with sinners. Then Jesus approaches and requests to be baptized, and it floors John the Baptist. Matthew 3.14 says that John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? In other words, John the Baptist is saying, I'm baptizing people because they need to repent of sins, but when it comes to the Son of God coming here, you should be baptizing me as I repent of sins. And then and see something there neat from John the Baptist. This is not some arrogant preacher in the wilderness. This is a man who recognized who he was, and he's fulfilling God's purpose. But, but he, he recognized something. The sinless Jesus doesn't need to show repentance. That doesn't make sense. Right away, he knows this isn't how it's supposed to be. He had done no sin. Yet Jesus told John to allow it, and so he was baptized. Now, immediately, if you look at Matthew 3, 16 through 17, it states, we find there's a clear public acknowledgement as, of Jesus as the Son of God here on earth. I'll read that. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. And so at the start of Christ's ministry, we're going to see different affirmations. One is a visual affirmation. The Holy Spirit comes to rest on him. It comes down, and this is not going to be some strange, oh, what's going on? The people knew from the context of the Old Testament what this meant, what this symbolized. So you have a visual affirmation, and beyond that, you have a very vocal affirmation. The Heavenly Father testifying about Him, and He didn't whisper it. He spoke it out there. Now, the multitudes were coming to be baptized by John. And again, I, I, I mention this over and over again to the point of redundancy, and I'm sure if you've heard it a lot, you're sick of me saying it. But the fact is this, that when Christ's ministry is going on, you're not seeing three people and ten sheep, and that's all he's talking to. When it says multitudes, it means multitudes. When all of Jerusalem is coming out to hear John the Baptist preach, that means they say it that way because there's a multitude of people out there. So when Christ is being baptized, it was never done in secret or in private. It was a public start to his ministry, a public connection to sinners, which is why Christ came to be sin for us, to die for us. And so you watch him be baptized. But when the visual affirmation comes, the multitude sees it. And when God the Father speaks, everyone hears it. And that's why I note here, this is no obscure occurrence. This was known by the church and beyond. It was really undisputed. I think it's one of the reasons the heresy didn't deny that the Messiah came on Christ at his baptism. 
Why they affirmed that he came on at the baptism but wasn't there at the death is because you can't deny the fact that when he's baptized, God talked. And you can't explain that voice. They didn't have all the gimmicks of technology that we have today. They knew this had taken place. This church had the opportunity to hear people who saw that happen talk about it. Now, I want to make a clear note. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus didn't have the Messiah come upon him. And so even though the false teachers said that Jesus had Christ come upon him, the Messiah come upon him, that's still a gross error. But the reason why they attached to that truth or that affirmation is because it was obvious to the first century church that something special took place at Christ's baptism. I put here as a question for us, but are, are we picking up and responding to the obvious evidence of Christ? Because this, this was a give me. This was, this was there for them to jump on. They knew this. Even the false teachers, though they're denying the full truth of it, connected to this reality in some way. But do we pick up and respond to the obvious evidence of Christ? Jesus was sinless perfection, yet he chose through his baptism at the start of his ministry, to identify with the sinners he came to save. So he is connecting to people who are sinners and getting baptized in in repentance. What do the Pharisees always accuse Jesus of? He eats with publicans and sinners. He's with the people. And so his whole ministry started with this identifying himself, connecting to those he came to save. And I put as a closing question, are we even paying attention? Do we even recognize the implication of the Savior identifying with us sinners, even though he was sinless perfection? Has that become a light thought to you? I know in my own life, I see how easily I think that thought and brush it aside because it's become so normal and it's just commonplace. I'm a Christian. Of course, I believe Jesus died on the cross for sins, but I forget that he was a sinless, perfect one that died on the cross for my sins. He identified with me and died for me. Are we even paying attention? And that's kind of the start of John's conversation. Yet salvation required a sacrifice, and so John quickly links Jesus' baptism to the blood. Here, the big distinction with the false teachers, right? Well, no, it's just just the water and the ministry, but not Jesus was a man who died and it was, was pointless. No, he says he links it to the blood. Here, John is speaking of his crucifixion. This was the point of his ministry. John wasted no time bluntly confronting the lie that's been floated in the church. What's the lie? That Jesus at his death was just another man dying for a good cause, but bearing no eternal benefit. If you read about the false teaching of this day, you think to yourself, no one believes that, so big deal. And then you suddenly realize something, and if you haven't already, you realize it now, that this is the exact Same thing that everyone believes today, that Jesus was a guy who died for a cause. Oh, you have a historical Jesus? Great. Sure, there was a real guy that died on a cross for the sins. But they believe it has no eternal benefit or significance. And so we'll talk about it a little bit later uh, as well. Though the lie might have different clothes on, it's the same lie. And it's being told over and over. 
See, he instead says, John is saying, the cross is an undeniable witness of our Savior and what he accomplished. The impact and truth of that real event came with creation's affirmations. And this is, again, easily attested to by those who would have witnessed it. They would still be on the scene, at least John was. These were all orchestrated by the Father. (coughs) You trace back into the crucifixion account. I'm just going to give two things. Darkness over the land from noon to 3 p.m. If it gets dark from noon to 3 p.m., it changes your day. It's going to alter how you think. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Things changed. Creation responded to the death of its creator. And Christ was instrumental in creation. And so the creation responds violently to what was a violent change. The earthquake happens, 27, 50, uh, same chapter, 51b notes this, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And so creation is, is reacting to the death of its creator, creation's affirmation. This coincided with the spiritual affirmation. The veil of the temple was torn, verses 51a, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Christ has changed everything. Old Testament saints resurrected and testifying. Verses 52 and 53, same chapter. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And I challenge you again, as we we oftentimes do, forget how many people see this. Could you imagine seeing dead people raised to life walking in the city and on purposely being noticed by you? Hi, I rose from the grave because Jesus died and rose from the grave. And so confronted there. Now, don't miss the many's because that many gets spread out. So it's, it's at his resurrection, at an event where tons of people from outside of Jerusalem have come in from all different nations, and they know about this. There's evidence of a major change. These were, as Paul describes, the testimony of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of them that slept. This all culminates in one of my favorite, I call them side stories of the crucifixion. I, I love the thief on the cross. I, I love the idea and that conversation you see in Luke um, of hope, of belief, of faith. It, it, it's It's pure hope, I think, if you're praying for a lost loved one and you see what happens. But there's another story, uh, maybe even more resonating with me, but there's this centurion at the crucifixion. There's a tough centurion. This guy is accustomed to command. He commands a hundred people. Listen, in the Roman army, there's none of this, you know, get away with whatever you want. You either listen to your commanding officer or they kill you. And he's used to commanding people to do whatever he tells them to do. On top of that, he's used to watching people die. He's in charge of executions. He's used to seeing Rome's enemies, that's how he's going to view this, killed on crosses. And he's used to telling his guys to kill people on a cross. And he's used to watching people suffer and die. So I'm trying to paint a picture of somebody who's not going to be moved because someone bleeds, cries, weeps, someone family member. This, This is a hardened individual. 
His job is tough. And what does he say? And he states in complete real faith and righteous fear, truly, this was the Son of God. That's no mere emotional response. He is completely moved to faith. The modern skeptic may describe the rejection of Jesus differently than those in the first century, but the baseline is the same, and I'm going to come back to that right now. They don't see the death of Jesus Christ as having any redemptive value. There's no value to it. It's worthless. They may believe that because they don't believe they need redemption. They may believe that because they have a different faith, God, whatever it may be. But you look at the modern skeptic today and they say the same thing that the first century skeptic was saying and arguing is that the death of Jesus Christ had no redemptive value. But the cross is evidence. As one writer notes, it's the king of heaven has come down and that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This is the true and biblical witness of our Lord's crucifixion. That's what John is saying. His ministry is affirmed. He starts his ministry at his baptism, and it goes all the way through his crucifixion, and it has redemptive value. I put here, but have you believed the true biblical witness of the cross? Have you believed what the cross is saying, what it's talking about? Now, the one constantly testifying and pointing to Christ and the witness of the water and the blood is his spirit. Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit. This was the empowerment of his ministry. Now remember the false teachers, they claimed higher knowledge and connection to God. They claimed special revelation. But John says, no, you've, you have the opposite. They've missed real knowledge as they ignored the spirit of truth. The fact that they denied the work of the cross, denied the complete truth of the Messiah, proved that they had missed the Holy Spirit's affirmation. <coughs> the Holy Spirit provides a consistent witness of Jesus as the Messiah. John fifteen twenty six states this, that, that Christ is his focus. But when the comforters come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. John sixteen fourteen declares of the Holy Spirit, he shall glorify me. And so John in his letter writes here, look, you have his baptism, the start of his ministry. You have his crucifixion, the point of his ministry. And that is all attested to by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is the empowerment of his ministry. He is the spirit of truth and involved in every component of Christ's life and ministry. MacArthur notes of the Holy Spirit, he is the source and revealer of divine truth, particularly about Jesus Christ. The Spirit was involved at Jesus' conception, baptism, temptation, and throughout his ministry. Peter said to those gathered in Cornelius' house in Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. See, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for ministry. Jesus always did the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit continues today, convicting the world of sin and pointing to the clear, evident Redeemer. As John 16, 8 states, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So John says, there's the testimony of the Holy Spirit and John had said in his gospel before that this Holy Spirit is working and it's convicting the world of sin. 
See, the Spirit testifies to the water and blood, and they are in agreement as the Trinity is in heaven, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to redeem us from our eternally deadly sin. There's no discrepancy at all in their testimony. And remember, the false teachers that have left the church, that have disrupted what's there, have said, well, he was Christ at his baptism. He no longer Christ at his death. We have special revelation that you don't have and only we have. And John is just flattening that out and saying, wrong. They believe a lie. That he was the Messiah at birth. We've talked about his incarnation. That he started his ministry with the affirmation of the Spirit and the Father. And that he has carried that ministry, all the three, is death as he died on the cross for our sins. And that the Spirit has continued to testify of that. There's no discrepancy at all in their testimony. There is no crack in their story. The only question is, do we believe them? Because that's what John is driving him to. That's why the scene feels like a courtroom. He's standing up and he's saying, let me call as a witness his baptism. Let me call as a witness his crucifixion. Let me call the Holy Spirit to the stand. And let's see what he has spoken about. Yet John is not done sharing the evidence for Christ. He continues with the special testimony of his father, speaking of God the Father. This is the will of of Christ's ministry. When he prays, he says, not my will, but thine be done. And so we see this constant reference to the Father as the will for the ministry. And and if you look at 9 through 11, it's going to build a story here. If we receive the witness of men, and again, think in a courtroom, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he had testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. See, John starts building his argument from the less to the greater. So we're going to believe what another human says, and being human, we know how bad humans are. We know they're liars and they're cheats and that they'll manipulate, that they're emotional, that they don't necessarily see everything correctly. So if we'll take their witness, then surely we will trust what God has to say. We accept what people say. It's admissible in court as valid testimony. Well, the testimony of God is far greater and more valuable than anything humanity could say. And so it bears complete attention and adherence. If you'll listen to what people say and say, well, they said it happened that way, so I'm going to believe them, then surely you will take God's testimony. But he makes another statement. If you don't believe God's testimony, it results in you being in direct opposition or conflict with God. Here, John shares the truth and weight of the Father's affirmation. First, God says life, eternal life, is found only in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's verse 11. And that's a bold statement. It means that every other faith is a lie, that it's an untruth, that it's not possible. You must believe in the Son to have life. There's only life in Jesus Christ. That means the Muslim faith that has Allah doesn't have Christ, they don't have eternal life. That means that someone who practices Judaism and doesn't believe in the Son doesn't have life. It means any other faith, 
any other twist. There's not multiple paths up the mountain. There's not multiple ways to God. It's very crystal clear that God is saying boldly, you must have the Son to have life. Secondly, to not believe that is to outright call God a liar. If you don't believe what God the Father says about God the Son, then you are turning to God and you're saying you are a liar. There's no neutral ground. And this is John again. Remember I talk about how he's so smooth. He's, he's the guy that walks beside you. And this is again one of those moments where he has a steely grip and he's drawing his line in the concrete. I wrote line in the sand, but that doesn't tell the picture. The line in the concrete there that's forever showing the absolute seriousness of denial. MacArthur captures well the weight carried in these verses. He writes this, Rejecting God's witness concerning his son is not a misfortune to be pitied or overlooked in the name of tolerance. It is a heinous, damning sin and affront to God's holy nature. Those guilty of it must not be patronized, comforted, or reassured, but confronted and called to repentance. This is no trivial issue The integrity of God is at stake. I believe in in a lot of ways as the church and our culture and our society, we have become very tolerant. We don't want to come off as (laughs) narrow-minded. Here's the truth. When you have the truth, everything else is a lie. And to tell somebody that the lie is truth makes you a liar. John wants them to see the battle they're doing against God. If you don't believe God, then you're saying God is a liar. You're not saying that I'm a liar. You're saying that God is a liar. Your battle is with God, not with man. And that's why I wanted to read what MacArthur written because it's, it's worded in such a firm way. This is not a trivial issue. This is not something I bend on because the integrity of God is at stake. If you say there's multiple ways to God and God says there's one way to God and he's very firm about that, to bend it all is for you to side with somebody who's accusing God of being a liar. And John is trying to shake the church here in this moment to recognize why it's so important to be grounded in your faith and to understand the truth of Christ and believe everything about him, to believe completely in him. Which makes me wonder this, have I understood and communicated clearly the weight behind the Father's testimony? Have I truly comprehended its implication and accurately shared that with those around me? You will not find the early church softening its message ever. Now, I say this all the time, just because you're obnoxious doesn't mean you're speaking the truth. It really just means you're obnoxious. But you speak the truth with no apology. The early church never apologized. It never sugarcoated. It never tried to talk someone into faith. It preached the truth. It shared the truth. It connected with the truth. There was community in the church. There was wonderful fellowship in the church. They faced persecution and hardship and hate and everything else under the sun. They never said anything else. They never said to someone, don't worry, the Romans want to kill you for being a Christian, but you'll be fine. 
Never was that said. They preached the truth directly and clearly. They preached the weight of the message. And I think too often we're trying to convince someone to be a Christian like we try to convince them to buy a Big Mac versus sharing the true weight of what it means and the weight of God's words. <coughs> this is his word. When someone spurns this, they spurn God's word, not mine. We stand behind the weight of the Father's testimony. Because even we get to participate in carrying the evidence of Christ to the world around us. Tucked right into the testimony from the Father <coughs> is this statement, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. The truth of Christ is also evidenced by his children. That's us. We're the proof of his ministry. Romans 8.16 states, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit in us bears testimony of our redemption, and that truth can be confidently lived out in the world around us. We proclaim Christ. We preach His truth. We are His ambassadors. This is our affirmation. We stand as witnesses of His redemption. We are the fruit of His sacrifice. Our lives broadcast the complete transformation brought by Christ. <coughs> If my life is a testimony to my Savior, then it's not my life that people are noticing. They're noticing Christ in my life. They're noticing Him. We stand as the proof of His ministry. I put as an action step here, but does your life show any evidence of your Savior? <coughs> does your life show any evidence of your Savior? Do, does it testify clearly of the truth, of His purpose, of His sacrifice? We've been redeemed from eternal death, redeemed from the enslavement to sin, and our lives should reflect that. <coughs> That's why when we selfishly pursue our life, not only are we being selfish, we are covering the truth of our life, the most important truth. We're obscuring his testimony, which is how John now closes his court testimony, he's speaking about what we have been given. He's going to drive to that. Our lives reflect what we've been given in Christ, and that's exactly how John ends it, because those who have the Son have his life. Or the word he uses is eternal life is given to us. This is the blessing of ministry. Here in closing is eternity's affirmation. Let me read verse 11 again. And this is the record right? You put into record, you go to court, you submit evidence in that way. <coughs> it's then approved and it's put officially into the court record. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. <coughs> Sin brought destruction upon all humanity. It brought hopelessness and a future of death and punishment. The wages of sin is death. Most of us know at least that part of the verse. But the Savior brought life, not just for a moment or for a lifetime, but instead for eternity. And that's actually been the struggle, right? When he came to earth and he's the Messiah, they wanted a lifetime ruler. They didn't want an eternal life. They wanted a moment of reprieve. They wanted a change in social status. They wanted something on this world. They didn't want what he was giving, which was way more than that, all of eternity. <coughs> Excuse me. What was lost in our sin is redeemed by his sacrifice. 
We've lost, we lost everything and he brings it all back by his gift. I go to the Old Testament on the close of this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Now, that word world translates the Hebrew word for eternity, forever, ages. And so if you're, you're looking at this and from the Hebrew perspective, it would read like this. He has set eternity in their heart. And he's speaking of humanity. So God has planted eternity in our heart. When we talk about eternity's affirmation, you can go all the way back to the Old Testament, recognize that eternity, this concept of beyond this world is planted in every heart. And there is a longing and unanswered question that comes with it. And Ecclesiastes is a book about questions. Uh, it, it is Solomon experimenting with the world. You can see the, the inceptive form of every worldview kind of woven in it. It is the worst experiment ever. We benefit from its lessons, but he lived them and he should have never lived them because he should have done what he said at the end to do. But he walks through this and what it says is that there's a long and unanswered question and it doesn't take too much reading to find that humanity wrestles with that constantly. Many have denied it, right? You read plenty of famous scientists. I use that in quotes because I think it's Stephen Hawking always said that, you know, we're old computers and we die. But if you ever read his science, it's about as bogus as can be uh, far-fetched sci-fi movie stuff. But the thing is, we have people that will deny it, but they, they can't run from it. They can't drown it out. What's fascinating, he still asks the same question. What about eternity? And he's the guy that says there's no eternity over and over again. And everyone asks about eternity. Why? Because everyone has eternity in their hearts. And so as you read these guys, even the biggest skeptics from all of history, you can see the longing there. Even the louder they shout, the more you can see behind it. They're still left wondering. Their denial sounds empty and lost. As the redeemed, we know eternity and the end. We know with surety our destination. We know the bliss of a renewed relationship and a longing for a future with our Lord and Creator. We are assured of forever, and that blessed assurance speaks yet again to the work of our most blessed Redeemer. But here's the question. Is that blessed assurance visible in your life? We have a blessed assurance. We know eternity. We've been given forever that, that longing that's been planted in the, the Ecclesiastes 3.11, that it's been planted in your heart, but you're confused completely about it, is answered in Christ. We know the answer to all eternity, but is that visible in my life? Does it radiate from my life? The blessed assurance of knowing my eternal destiny, of knowing my Savior, of having a renewed relationship with the Creator of all eternity. Verse 12 states this, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And again, I say this over and over. John writes in a musical format, and I'm not musical, so I'm diving into illustrations that, that I struggle with. But um, if you've ever heard me sing, you know what I'm saying. Um, but he moves. He doesn't have a logical argument. He has a very flowing argument, but he, he makes some of the boldest statements you don't have the sun, you don't have life. You have the sun, you have life. And so he's given such 
a body of evidence, but he closes with gospel simplicity. As one writer notes, only those who believe the Father's witness to the Son and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior have eternal life. All who refuse to do so do not have the Son and consequently do not have eternal life. The promise to people who believe, the testimony is seen in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the warning for those who do not Believe the testimony is stated in Hebrews 12, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, I echo the cry of one commentator I read. Four words, choose life, choose Jesus. That's what he wrote. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're, you're, you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And so I would say choose life, choose Christ. And for those of us who do believe, let's be sure our testimony is a gospel testimony, clearly sharing the evidence of God's truth and of his salvation. Let's pray together. And Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather, to study your word, to, to walk through the book of 1 John. And we know uh, you used the Apostle John late in life, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write to the church. And now a church that has faced uh, false teachers, they've seen exits, they've seen people they thought knew you walking away from the faith, living as pagans, pretending to have higher knowledge, <clears throat> developing their own worship, which ultimately was a worship of self. And it shook the church, and John is writing and saying, don't be shaken. The evidence of your faith is clear. It's obvious it's irrefutable, and he walks them through, really, the life and ministry of Christ. He walks us through that, letting us know what we believe in, but also letting us know the blessed assurance that we have, and that we have a responsibility to share that with the world around us. Help our message to be clear. Help our lives to share boldly and clearly your message of salvation and the hope found in you. In your precious and holy name, amen.